Mm. Like I remember hitting this one guy and he fell over a railing and I was like, I was like, oh my God, I killed this guy. And I, and I, I hid for a long time in a bathroom. If anybody witnesses, I like, I'm like, I don't, obviously I didn't want to hurt him. I didn't want to go to jail. I didn't want to, yeah. and, but I thought I killed this guy and I was like, oh my God. And yeah. it just really, it really, uh, it really starts to affect you, you know, and I would, I'd go, I'd beg people, please, please don't, uh, please don't, uh, push this, don't push this. And then people, you know. Just, uh, it's just a nice rainy Saturday here in Nashville. Um, I've got Ben Smith with me for folks who don't know who you are. Uh, what's your, what's your story? What's the 10,000 foot view? Why are you on a, why are you on a podcast sharing, <laughs> sharing your story? Well, I am the founder of uh, the Goliath Foundation, which is basically aimed at uh, helping men find more peace and groundedness in their lives. And um, that's kind of my thing in, in life now after, uh, after traversing a pretty, uh, pretty crazy uh, environment myself to come out on the other end. Now I like to help others. Okay, that's interesting. So when you say traversing a pretty interesting environment, well, what's what's kind of the story of your what's your coming of age story? I mean, where'd you grow up? What did you what'd you go through? What what kind of brings you to this point where you start this Goliath project uh, to help men? Well, Goliath the Goliath Foundation has been around for a while, but it it slowly picked up momentum. But um, I'm a personal trainer. We owned a couple of gyms and this and that, so I I was kind of doing that anyways, work within the schools mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. But for me personally, um, yeah, it's just my, my upbringing was, I was adopted. I'm originally from Seattle, but I grew up in greater Vancouver and, uh, yeah, I, I was in a very, very volatile, violent, um, upbringing, a lot of racism, mm. um, in my own home. It was, it was just really, uh, really violent, really, really, um, harsh environment for me to grow up in. So I, as I grew up, I, I end up, uh, really having a lot of addiction to violence and a lot of addiction to, to various things, which led to me being a bouncer and, and, and I bounced for 14 years from the time I was 17 till I was 31. And, you know, being around a lot of gangsters and drug dealers and my friends getting killed at gang wars and this and that. And so I had to kind of make sense of a lot of these things. And then, yeah, it just kind of took me basically through my 30s, working with people as a personal trainer, working with youth through uh, anti-bullying programs that I ran. I ran the Gloves Off. I I developed and ran the Gloves Off program, which is an anti-bullying program. I was working in the schools. I was working as a youth outreach worker. And I was kind of putting together all the pieces of, of my own past with violence and addiction and drugs and, and all these different things and seeing and, and, and putting all the dots together and seeing how I could really help others. And, and uh, through the personal training, because it's so, it's so intimate and one-on-one, I, I got a real feel for people's energies. And, mm. and, uh, and I just really, I started to really kind of get my head around the fact that everybody's looking for the same thing and everybody kind of deserves and, and, and can experience that joy and that peace and that happiness that I eventually found, but you got to kind of find a ways to reshape it in your life. So basically that's, that's my kind of, uh, synopsis of my story and uh what i do 
It's interesting. So you say you, you're from Seattle, you were adopted, and then you grew up in British Columbia. For folks who don't know, like Vancouver is what folks think of in America typically when they think of British Columbia. Hmm. Um, um, I know there's a whole lot more to that. That's just kind of the American perception of it. But you said you grew up around a lot of racism and violence. And what's interesting to me, so that doesn't necessarily surprise me because I understand humans are humans. But within the United States, there's this concept of Canada as like the land of milk and honey for some reason. As if all the problems we have here just magically don't exist there. Partially mm-hmm. because the Canadian government has exceptional PR in the United States. It's very impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but talk a little bit about that. Talk about that upbringing part, the violence in your home, the racism, the drugs, the gangs, etc. cetera, um, mm-hmm. growing up in that part of Canada. Well, I'm from East Vancouver. So East Vancouver, is it's not so bad now, but when we were growing up, it was kind of always known as kind of a tougher area, mm-hmm. um, especially where I grew up around Main Street there. So, I mean, even now, even for Canada, I think uh, Maine and Hastings area, that whole area around there is is probably the one of the worst, if not the worst in Canada for um, for addiction and, and homelessness. And I'm not sure about homelessness, but it, it's, it's historically been a really bad area. Um, and, uh, and I mean, I, I go to Seattle a lot. I've been in New York and I've never seen any place that's worse as far as that kind of situation with the homelessness and the, and the drug addiction than, than Hastings, mainly Hastings area. So, so if people think that Vancouver is, is all, Pretty, I mean, it's a beautiful city. I love mm-hmm. Vancouver, but it's definitely got a harsh side to it for sure. Yeah. And uh, for me, growing up again in the seventies, there wasn't a lot of black people around, right? So, and I'm adopted into a white environment, like a like my family, my adopted family was white, um, mm-hmm. and uh, so basically, in the neighborhood I grew up in, it was a very, very tough neighborhood, very, very tough neighborhood with a lot of a lot of the kids I grew up with got shot, killed, and they're you know they're just dead now uh because that's there was a there that's the name that's what that neighborhood bred um but um there wasn't a lot of black people i knew one other black kid uh boy and then another black girl all the way up until grade eight Mm. so in my neighborhood so so there's a lot of east indian there's a lot of asian there was a lot of caucasian it was still mostly caucasian back then in the 70s um so yeah, it was a ton of racism, even in my own home, you mm. know, because um, <laughs> I'm probably going on elaborating a little bit here, but no, no, my, go, go, go. my parents divorced when I was in grade three. So my, my brother and I moved to East Vancouver. My, my, my sister and my mom moved to another side. Like actually they moved even further East, right? Almost on the border of Burnaby and Vancouver, but it's not as quite as crazy over there. But where my brother and I moved, we moved into a real, real um, mouse-infested, almost uninhabitable little shack of a home. And my dad was working lots to try and pay things. So me and my brother were basically left on our own. And uh, in this really, really tough neighborhood where my brother was, my older brother was one of the toughest and most vicious and meanest. Um, our house was basically, there's no parent, there's no super, adult supervision. So all these tough kids would be in my house and just kicking the crap out of me and, you know, nigger this, nigger that. Like, that's just the way mm-hmm. I lived, right? And it was like, there's nobody around to stop it. Nobody, 
So it was, it was basically where two, me and my brother were two unsupervised kids in this very, very tough neighborhood um, where everybody just kind of used our home as a, our place as a home base to basically kick the crap out of me. So that's kind of how I grew up, right? Interesting. So, so elaborate a little bit more on, so you're adopted. I'm, I'm assuming, since it's somewhat obvious, you knew you were adopted. It wasn't something that was kept from you. Uh, oh yeah, no, I, I knew early I was adopted yeah. because I, yeah, yeah. my parents are white. Yeah, you can't. That'll be that'll be one hell of a punnet square to pull that off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you, you so you're already dealing with the um, identity issue and identity trauma of being adopted, and then on top of that, you tell me like, hey, I knew one other black kid and guy and and one black girl until I was like in grade eight. You know, how do you, how did that impact you throughout your life having that identity crisis in, in a way? Because you're, you're having to reconcile, like, obviously you love your parents because they took you in and they, they raised you and, and all, all these things. But then also you're in an environment where you're like, damn, nobody looks like me. What well, was really confusing for me because my adopted brother, he's, he's very dark skin. So, I mean, I think, I think there's obviously, he's obviously got black blood in him, but he, his features are very Italian. He has straight hair, except he's dark skin. Mm -hmm. So when we were kids, again, like we, it was, it was very, very confusing for me because my brother being older and my brother's also, so my brother's very, very vicious, but he's also very intelligent, very athletic. Mm -hmm. He's like, so I think he realized very early on that if he was like, highlight the fact that I was a nigger and he wasn't, mm. then it would, it would kind of distract people from it. And that's basically how it went all through until we were adults. And he started wow. to kind of accept that, oh, it started to play the different role. But all the way up until we were adults, he would, uh, he had everybody convinced because of his straight hair and his Ita Italian nose and this and that, that he was, he was Italian, but I was a nigger, 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 nigger. So Everywhere we went, I was like my brother was the worst. He would just be like nigger, 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 and then because he did it, everybody did it. So then in my house, all his friends, everybody would be coming over, and I was constantly, constantly. I, I used to I used to wake up with two prayers every morning. Please don't let me get beat up, and please don't let me get called a nigger. And cause I hated wow. it. I hated. It. I was the only one. So all day like in my house everywhere it, it just was so harsh right and i could and again i couldn't really understand it because it's like yeah but you're darker than i am yeah but i'm mm. italian you're a nigger 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 and it was just it just it just blew my mind like I, it just was so confusing to me right how much resentment did that build in you like through your teenage years and like early adulthood well i think by the time i was uh, a teenager um like by the time I was kind of graduating high school, um, I don't know. I think it had a lot of – there was a lot of uh, resentment that had built up. And then as I was – through the years bouncing, I started to really, really vent it a lot more. Because, again, the, a, a large part of my story is that uh, I was a dad when I was – you know, I became a dad when I was 20. And then I went through a nasty, nasty custody battle over my daughter finally won after a year in court um and it was very very nasty and uh um i won my right to see my daughter have my daughter three days out of seven and i went to pick her up one day and her mom had just disappeared 
and I didn't know where she where she was, and I, I figured that was I'd never see her again. Um, and that was when I was 23, and I just went off the deep end, and it was really at that point I was working in a very very crazy, very very violent nightclub, and uh, I just basically I was I was just a, a guy with a death wish, just taking all that pain and all that resentment and all that years of fighting, literally thousands of fights, thousands of fights, because I fought almost every day um, and taking it out on all the bullies that I came across and all the guys in this nightclub. It's just like, you know what? I'm going to put a bullet in my head, but before I do, I'm taking out every one of you that I can. Anybody who gets in my face, I'm taking you out. Mm. And that's kind of how it was for me, right? And that was uh, that was because of all that resentment from all the years of – like, even when I wasn't getting beat up, all of our games were fighting games. Me and my brother would stand in the corner and just see who could knock each other out. And we'd stand there and try to knock each other out with headbutts. It was all this violence and toxic masculinity. And and when I had nothing left to lose, you know, after when my daughter was taken, it was right around that time. My mom went into a coma and she died a couple months later. So it was like a huge mix of all this stuff that was just built up over the years. And it was just, mm. uh, yeah, it was crazy. Well, and it's interesting what you say about the nightclub, the violence, and the I'm going to go after all these bullies. And especially when you're the bouncer, you're in a position of authority. So uh, because at the end of the day, you are hired by the club to keep, you know, to to protect the club, essentially. Um, so it, it's like the foot is on the other shoe. You're finally in a place of power because all these other years – even though these kids were coming into your house, they had basically your brother's blessing to kick your ass. And they were older than me too. Yeah. A couple of years older. Yeah. Which when you're 13 and somebody's 16, that's a huge difference when you're 33 and someone's 36, it ain't nothing, you know, that's a big deal. Um, it is. so you, you, you know, you think you're never going to see your daughter again. Your mom goes into a coma. You, I, I want to really, I want you to really elaborate on this because I think this is so important. You said I'm going to put a bullet in my brain, but before I do that, I'm going to take out all of you, um, or I'm going to challenge all of you, or whatever it may be. But yet here we are, no bullet in your brain, you're alive. What, what kept you from doing that? Um, yeah, you know, I, 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 uh, I wrote a book about it, so I talked about it a lot, but I, I think. Um, well, first of all, in that year when I was fighting over over my daughter, um, I was I had moved to Prince George, so I was quite far away. But um, I was fighting off allegations of of you know molesting my daughter and okay. violence, like all these lies. It was crazy, and it just I got into a really bad work accident. They told me I might not work again. I was out of I couldn't get compensation. I was about to be homeless. And I was in this real dark place and I actually got admitted to the hospital for a suicide attempt at that time. Mm. And then, but, uh, you know, obviously I survived that. And then fast forward six months later and my daughter was taken and that, and that's when I was like, okay, last time it didn't work, you know, but this time I, I'm going to do it. But before I do, before I do, uh, I'm taking out everybody. But what kept me, what kept me going, I think, um, well, it was, it was a kind of a combination, I think, between my daughter's out there somewhere, mm-hmm. my daughter's out there and, and wow, man, what, what, like, what kind of man am I for her to have to know that her dad killed herself? Mm. And also, um, there's always that little spark 
that you know I'm more than this. I'm more than this. I, sh- you know, what happened? I, 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 I'm more than this. I'm not. I'm not this. You know. So, and I think I was kind of seeking that my whole life because I struggled in so many ways. I was school. I had a lot of health problems. I was like set back right away. I'd been all these different problems that I was struggling with. So I always kind of, I always was like kind of a troubled kid and and felt like a failure in many ways but I always thought man like this is I, I got to be more than this so I think when it when it all came to that that head when I was 23 24 um that was probably the thing my daughter and that little spark of hope that no I I, I know for sure there's somewhere in me I'm not this loser mm. somewhere in me I'm not this loser and yeah. that's such a powerful statement because so many men find themselves in the position of, why am I such a loser? Mm-hmm. And obviously your scenario is a very, very extreme one. Most people aren't fighting a custody battle or, you know, about to be homeless. You know, uh, what's scary is the, the constant comparison we've created in our society of the highlight reel makes it easier and easier to believe you're a loser. Mm -hmm. And men, by their very nature, want to be providers. They want to be protectors. They want to have goals. They want to achieve. Like, we strive on responsibility. Whether we want to admit it or not, that's that's when we shine. Um, And that's, in a lot of ways, what we seek. And, man, you find yourself in that hole where you're like, why am I such a loser? That is a hard and scary hole to climb out of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I say, a lot of people are, are struggling with that right now, and and again, there's different levels of of extreme, but the the constant is how you feel about it, right? If you mm-hmm. feel like it's if it's the bottom of the barrel for you, then that's then it is what it is, right? And it's you know that's nobody should feel like that. No, but it also depends on like what kind of idols do you create in your life? Oh, for sure. What are you looking up to? Because if if your baseline of comparison is Kobe Bryant and his basketball skill and you're like, you're not as good as him and you see yourself as a loser, you know, that's a, that's a real hard, that's a, but, but people like that, they do that. Or, or Mm -hmm. you see something on Instagram or you see, um, you know, maybe it's an income thing or whatever it may be, or maybe you just feel like you're down and out. Like I would encourage folks that you're not a loser as long as you, you keep fighting. In whatever battle that may be, and as long as you're looking to improve yourself and and constantly get better and and figure out how, from your mistakes and and things like that, mm-hmm. um, did you have any outlets in sports or anything like that growing up? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did a lot of. I did. You know, I started wrestling and boxing quite young, and then um, bodybuilding was was a big passion. That was one of the first times I. I've been arrested a few times when I was young, and I. Uh, and and bodybuilding was one of the first things when I was f- fifteen. Um, I, I after after a, a pretty I don't know, an arrest, I, uh, I I took up bodybuilding. It was kind of one of the first things that changed my life. But then obviously I fell back again later. So, yeah. but boxing was probably the one that really helped me shed all the uh, all the or not all of, but a lot of the the violence and the the. Uh, Whatever, Elaborate toxic. on that because that sounds counterintuitive. Yeah, well, um, again, I started boxing pretty young, but um, 
when I, uh, when I kind of got a little bit older and, and I really committed to boxing, I, I, uh, I don't know. It just, it gave me a positive outlet. Um, it gave me something to focus on. It gave me something that, uh, you know, just to put my energy into. Right. And, and I, I had a pretty, I set a pretty big goal for myself and uh, I knew it was pretty, the chance of making it uh, like my goal was to try to make the Olympic team. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I knew that it was a pretty hefty goal, but I was just kind of focused on it. It just gave me, it gave me a sense of purpose and direction. As I got to become a better athlete, um, I don't know. I just, again, I just shed a lot of that need or that toxic or that that toxic, violent feeling, right? And I just kind of found peace within myself. And and again, it wasn't the end of the story, but it helped me get to that place because then I, I again, I was still, I kept bouncing. But I end up, I I end up kind of having enough enough um, peace from the boxing that when when things finally hit ahead, you know, came to a head when I was thirty one, um, I was able to finally say, you know, okay, it got to got to end it. So, did you ever box professionally, or was it always an amateur? I did fight professionally, yeah. Okay, but I only I only had one fight as a professional before I just said, you know what, you know, I need to let this go. Yeah. I'm curious about this. So two questions on the boxing front. Have you ever been knocked out and have you ever knocked somebody out? In the boxing ring or just yeah, generally? in the boxing ring. Oh, yeah, both. <laughs> okay. The first, what was the feel? So uh, uh, we're talking about this within a, there's rules, there's a ref, there's a ring, there, you know, because the streets are different. Um, that's a separate conversation. But I'm talking about the first time you got knocked out and the first time you knocked somebody out. Compare and contrast those two feelings. Um, well, <laughs> let's see, getting, getting knocked out is very, very peaceful for anybody that hasn't like, especially in a boxing ring, because if you get dropped in a boxing ring and it's, is I mean, I haven't been ever knocked right out, like where I was like, they had to drag me out of the ring kind of thing, but yeah, yeah. I've been dropped to the ground and didn't yeah. know where I was and I was standing and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But I got up standing, but it's super peaceful, right? Because you don't, it's just like the life, the world just disappears for a while until you come back. Right. Interesting. So one time I came, one time I came back in the changing room and I was up and I was walking and I, all that stuff. Another time I came back when I was fighting in LA, I, I felt, I felt like I was knocked out in the first round, but I fought the whole fight up until 17 seconds into the fight left in the fight. And then I don't remember anything till I, I was like sitting on the hotel bed when we got back to our hotel. So, so that whole time I was kind of knocked out, but I was still fight. I fought almost the whole fight. And, uh, so again, when you get knocked out, especially in a boxing ring, like, well, my experience in the boxing ring, cause these guys can really hit. Right. So if you get knocked out, I don't know, it's very peaceful because you just lose, uh, I don't know. It's just, you kind of go to sleep basically. And, <laughs> and I wrote about this in my book, which I never have published yet, but I wrote about it in my book, how there's, because I grew up fighting because I fought every day for years and years and years. There's a part of me as a boxer that would, a lot of times I would kind of get knocked out, but I would just, my body just knew what to do. Mm. Like, because it had done it so much. And, and so I won fights that I, I didn't even know I'd, you know, I didn't know I'd won. Right. Yeah. Now, what so about the the side of when you knock somebody out in the ring? Um, 
Yeah, it's usually a knockout when you knock somebody out in a boxing ring. Um, it's it's a whole bunch of things coming together, so it's almost kind of surprising, right? It's kind of like it's like it's not like you're like uh, generally it's not like you're powering through it. It's just like a whole bunch of things come together. Boom! Oh, he's down, and then you just kind of you know it's like huh. It's just kind of almost like wow, that's kind of kind of yeah. trippy. <laughs> but it's but boxing's different though, right? Because especially as an amateur, um, well, even as a pro too. I mean, we're all friends, right? For the yeah. most part, we're all friends. We train together. We get along. And it's not like generally, it's not like, at least in my experience, like you're, you, there's a lot of animosity. I mean, you build up a level of aggression when you're going to fight. But but again, we're all friends. We like each other. We hang out. We party. We train together. All this kind of stuff, right? So you're not you're yeah, not a, really trying to hurt anybody, right? These are yeah, these are friends, right? Yeah, it's a match, right? It's competition. It's sports. Yeah. So like when you do knock sense. somebody out, or when you drop somebody or hurt them, or whatever, there's that party that's kind of like, oh wow, that's cool. It all came together. But you also there's also that part of you like, oh man, I hope this person's not hurt, right? Yeah, the reason I asked is I, I don't know if you've ever listened to Joe Rogan talk about his Brazilian jiu-jitsu career. No. Um, so um Joe Rogan was like a world-class martial artist in his 20s. I mean, he was a national champion, all this stuff. And I remember listening to his so in his early 20s, I remember listening to the, him explain why he left that world. He still trains and stuff, but he stopped fighting. Um he said he knocked out a guy so hard that he was genuinely afraid that he might have killed him. Um, and that's, he said he went, I'm paraphrasing here, so sorry if for all the Joe Rogan stands if I'm telling the story <laughs> wrong. But he basically was like, he went home that night and he was like, I can't do that anymore. Like, this is not, and so that's how he got into stand-up comedy and acting. He basically was like, I got to do something else. But yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. thought of like knocking somebody out that hard to where you're like, oh my God. <laughs> Is this person yeah. going to live has got to be absolutely terrifying. Well, I never felt that as a boxer. I mean, I wasn't a super hard puncher. I was more uh, speed and, and toughness and, and skill and stuff like that. So I was never really worried about my power of hurting somebody in the ring. Um, and that, cause that was not my style of fighting, but as a bouncer, especially when I got older. So yeah. I'm just going to tell my trajectory as a bouncer. So as a kid bouncing, I was always kind of scared. Cause I was underage. I was working in bars before I was even old enough to be in the bar and I'm a bouncer. Mm, so yeah, I was yeah. quite, I was quite nervous about it. Like I was like, Oh, am I up to task? Am I up to task? And then I realized I was, you know, like, well, I can take care of myself. And then I went through the transition where it's like, you know, okay, you know, I kind of got off on the violence. Like, wow, I'm, I'm really quite tough. I didn't know how tough I yeah, was. I'm so around getting beat up and then and then you go through, i went through that phase of where i was like where i was really trying to make people pay in the my 20 23 24 after my daughter had been taking but then towards the end i transitioned all the way to the point where again i was bouncing in the strip bar by myself five nights a week so three nights a week i'd be by myself and two nights i'd have i'd have backup but again it was a pretty busy strip bar very popular strip bar and it was frequented by a lot of uh, gangsters and and stuff like that as well but people, but by that time, it's like, it's like I would knock people out. I mean, it was my job, right? So, so doing my job and, and protecting myself was, had to come first, but I would like, I would knock people out. And that's when I would like really start to worry about hurting people. Because mm -hmm. again, these aren't boxers. These are, and also, um, yeah, you know, it's different when you're thinking about getting points and you, you want to win a match compared to like, 
well, I'm going to do what I need to do to survive here or need to do what I need to do to kind of uh, de-escalate the situation as fast as possible, especially if you're outnumbered or whatever like that. Um, that's when I started to really worry about hurting people. Mm. Like I remember hitting this one guy and he fell over a railing and I was like, I was like, oh my God, I killed this guy. And I, and I, I hid for a long time in a bathroom because I was like, oh my God, if anybody witnesses, I like, I'm like, I don't, obviously I didn't want to hurt him. I didn't want to go to jail. I didn't want to, yeah. but I thought I killed this guy and I was like, oh my God. And yeah. it just really, it really, uh, it really starts to affect you, you know, and I would, I'd go, I'd beg people, please, please don't, uh, please don't, uh, push this don't push this and then people you know push it because <laughs> they're yeah, 21 they and drunk it. and an idiot yeah they would push it and and especially when you're the only dormant sometimes people get a bit cocky right but what they don't realize especially again when i was bouncing is i got a job to do and and i can't take a chance like if you're in my face and you're making these moves these aggressive moves yeah and 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 whatever i i like it could be me I got to strike first, and I got a job. So if you if you make a a a move at me or whatever, I'm taking you out. I have no choice. Yeah. So so you said everything came to a head when you were 31 years old. So what came to a head when you were 31? What what was the trigger moment? Um, Well, there's you can look online to uh, to see the story about uh, about uh, the guy that infiltrated the Hell's Angels, but the whole the whole situation with uh, this guy, his name was, uh, I don't even know if I want to, well, I mean, again, you can look online. His name was Mike Plante. But Mike Plante uh, was basically infiltrating the, wearing a wire and infiltrating uh, the Hells Angels at that time. And a lot of that, a lot of that was going on at the bar where I worked, the strip bar where I worked at. Mm. So anyways, there, there's a lot of heavy hitters in the bar and there was a lot of craziness going on. And then one night, this big bar brawl broke out and, uh, and it was it was just crazy, and the police had to be calm, calm, and a lot of people were like getting smashed with chairs and this and that. And I was like, and it was like I'd all bounce for so long. I was trying so hard to get out, but I couldn't get out because it kept dragging me back for different mm-hmm. reasons. This addiction, and then finally that night, I was like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I gotta go. And the, mm-hmm. I handed him my tag, and then that was the end of it. Interesting. So now you've been bouncing for fourteen years. You've been boxing. Everything in your life has revolved around some sort of violence, whether you know creative or destructive, whatever it may be. And you're 31 years old, and you're looking up, and you're like, "Well, crap! What do I do now?" So, what what do you do now? <laughs> well, I transitioned into being a personal trainer and uh, teaching boxing. So, I did a lot of uh, corporate boxing. I was lucky enough to land a, a corporate boxing gig where a large corporation called the BC boxing association asking for somebody to teach, do a team building boxing uh, program for a, a, a large group of their employees. So I basically, I, I took that, I was able to take that job and, and it was successful. And I used that momentum to transition and do a more group boxing and more corporate boxing. I worked at EA sports and different places and, and just transition into teaching more, more boxing and personal weight training and this and that. And I, I kind of basically just transitioned away from that. We opened up our, we moved to the Sunshine Coast and opened up a fitness facility and a personal training studio. So it just kind of transitioned into teaching. And then mm. the, as I was teaching more cor- corporate clients, I was also kind of getting more into working with, with kids and the youth. 
and doing anti-bullying and seeing how boxing can be a great way to do, to teach mm. people uh, the confidence and the, the self-assurance to be able to kind of be solid enough that you don't need to fight. You can kind of just learn better conflict resolution through um, negotiation and through whatever, right? Different yeah. forms of conflict resolution because it, a lot of it is just having the confidence, right? So boxing, you know, you're more fit. You kind of know how – that was always my thing. Whenever I taught kids, even to this day, I was like, I could teach you the sport of boxing. I could teach you to throw some punches. But if I do this, you know, I, I can't ever hear that you've been into a fight because with, power come, with more power comes more responsibility. Mm. So that was kind of always my guideline was I will teach you to box – but with skills and powers comes uh, greater skill and power comes greater responsibility. So that's an interesting concept. Teach the kids. Sorry if I interrupted you, but I really want to talk about this. Teach kids the skill and the power to where they have the confidence to know they can knock somebody out. But because they have that confidence, they also have the confidence to walk away. Yeah, I mean... You know, let's face it. I mean, in my experience, a lot of a lot of things go down. You know, because of defensiveness, mm. because you're you're insecure about a situation. I mean, even even arguing with uh, with somebody or even your wife about something, it's like if you get defensive, if you feel like you're being, you know, or threatened in the situation, you're going to fight back. But if you feel like you know what whatever like i i know my yeah. thing i know that i know that i'm i did the best i could you could say you know what honey i'm sorry i've upset you let's just move forward you know you don't have to fight back right yeah in any situation in any exactly. walk of your life if you're super solid in yourself you can just you know what let's move forward exactly exactly yeah there's a there's something about you want to talk about positive masculinity something about that quiet strength where you don't have to fight back or you don't have to when you're confident in yourself and you're confident in, in, in certain things like my wife and I talk about this sometimes, like the things that set certain guys off with their wives in particular, we observe. And I'm like, that doesn't set me off because I don't feel like even if you did that, I don't feel like I would be any less of a man because you did that. I don't have any of that to prove. I'm very confident and, and very self-assured in my manliness, quote unquote, or my husbandness, quote unquote. Nice. Um, Such so a great place to be. It took a long time to get there. Still working on it, but yeah, I don't need to. I didn't. I don't need to snap at her for X, Y, Z. Um, you know, because because I know it doesn't it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Maybe she's having a bad day. Maybe this. Maybe that. Whatever. So getting to that point, I always try to encourage guys like, Hey, how do you get to that point where you're just the calm level headed man in your household that can take on stress, take on all the stress if necessary and still keep it all together without losing your crap. Cause I think that's where a lot of problems come into play. Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And that's basically the work I do with men now through the Goliath Foundation is is trying to get people to feel like so secure. So much of it is is finding that, that self-assurance, right? So mm -hmm. finding those those things within yourself that I always say you gotta you have to focus on things that make you feel good about yourself that, that mm -hmm. nobody can ever take away from you, right? 
Because yeah. if you feel good about yourself because you drive a great car, well, you're not always going to have that car. Yeah, and one wreck. If you feel, yeah, or or because you're your hot girlfriend or whatever. I mean, these are such external things. But if you can find things within yourself that nobody can ever take away from you, and and build your self assurance around those things, now you now you can start to layer layer more and more things like that internal. Um, internal things that, that nobody could take away that, that build you to the state where you're just like, God, I'm solid. I know who I am. I feel so good about myself. Nothing can really get me down because I know the truth about myself. I know that I'm, I'm a loving person. I'm a kind person. I'm a strong willed person. I'm a whatever it is. Right. And then you can walk solidly into any situation and say, you know what? I'm not threatened by you. I'm not threatened by your opinion about me. I'm not threatened by your, whatever because i know who i am and i know where i am in the world i know how i where i stand and and from that place from that place of like super solid um self-assurance and groundedness now you can basically go out into any situation and be like this calm steady um source of uh joy and Mm -hmm and inspiration to others and you can inspire others and you can uplift others. And, and the more you do that, the more it comes back to you and you start to realize your true power as a human being in this world where, where maybe you don't have a lot of money and maybe you don't have a lot of the things that the external things that people are seeking, but you have this confidence that people are just like, I, you know, I don't know what it is about this guy, but God, he makes me feel so good. He's like, I want to be like him. He's always yeah. so grounded. He's always so happy. You know what I mean? And and you start to feel like, wow, I really, I really have power. I have real power to influence others because I have power to to uplift myself. Yeah, people right? are attracted to strong confidence and calm confidence. Oh, and and you sure. know, kind of kind of back to the whole like masculinity thing. Like the easiest way to start a fight with a guy is to call him a little bitch. You know, like that is literally the quickest way. And I think about that myself, like 10 years ago when I was 22, you know, that's, you call me that I'm in your face. Um, if somebody called me that now, I would probably laugh at them because it, it doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? And, and, and that's the trajectory and the, um, again, to make it very clear, there's plenty of things I need to work on myself, but like, that ain't it. <laughs> like yeah, you're not, yeah. you're not going to get me in a fight by something you say, because yeah, yeah. your words are pretty much completely irrelevant to me. Um, and, 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 you know, figuring that out because so much destruction in the world and in our own lives is caused by just those stupid little triggers that we never overcome for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to be self-aware enough to n- acknowledge that, Hey, that's a problem and I need to overcome it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so what is, what has been some of the most rewarding just aspects of helping men? you know, figure out that, that calm, confident energy, um, as long as you've been working with this project? Well, again, I've been doing, uh, this kind of work for, um, let's see, we moved over to the coast in 2004 and we opened up our gym around that. Uh, yeah, 2004. So I've kind of been working with kids and doing this kind of work since, I mean, 18 years, right? 18 years on and off, but it's getting, it's become much more focused just recently, especially since COVID happened when COVID started. But uh, the most rewarding thing I got to say, you know, this probably would rub some people the wrong way, but I'm a very, very, I'm a big believer in being selfish. I'm a big believer in being selfish enough to just kind of do what makes, 
like things that are going to uplift you. And so I would say the most rewarding thing for me is being able to impact these people to the point where, where I could see, I could see them uplifted. I could see them feeling Mm. like better about themselves, like immediately, immediately. And I could see it in their eyes. I could feel in their energy. And it makes me feel so uplifted. It's like, it's like, Oh my God, like look at the power I have to influence a life. Like look Mm. at the power I have to walk out my door smile at somebody you'll make them laugh a little bit give them a good a a genuine compliment see the the beaming with 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 joy and get the hit back hit back from it that's that's the thing that's most rewarding to me um you know like i was with a kid yesterday you know this kid that their parent his parents reached out to me you know he you know he's having trouble he's a 14 year old kid and he needs some mentorship and we just walked and we talked and we just we talked about comics and we did whatever and it was not it wasn't me trying to kind of cram yeah. a bunch of stuff down his throat it wasn't it was just me seeing him as this this little ball of potential and mm. joy and and just seeing the goodness and seeing all the potential in him and being so excited for him and as i was excited for him you know you could see you you could feel the excitement it, it, Coming from you know, it was like this this thing that it was wood building. So after an hour, it was like it was like, oh man, I can't wait to see you again. Oh, I can't wait to see you again too. And and seeing him walk away feeling empowered, and then myself walking away empowered. So mm. that's what I get. That's probably what I get the most out of is realizing that that you can impact people so profoundly. But the more you do that, the more it impacts you profoundly, right? Mm. Yeah, the positive feedback loop to where you want oh. to do it more often and. Yeah, it's it's I've on a much smaller scale because I'm not working with youths and and folks the way you are, but um, there's nothing cooler, in my opinion, than having a conversation with someone and and truly seeing that they are starting to see something that's possible for them that they didn't see before because you yeah. helped them see it. That's pretty cool. Oh, it's so cool! It's like there's nothing better, really. Yeah. yeah. Um. We're coming up on time, so I want to make sure I ask the question that I always ask to end the podcast. But if we go back to 18-year-old you, all right, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, constant fights, bouncing, et cetera, if you could go back in time and tell yourself one thing, knowing all that you know about yourself at this point and knowing all that you know in general, what would that one piece of advice be that you give your 18-year-old you? 18-year-old me, I would say... uh let me just think here. I would say, uh, you know what? No matter how things look, it's going to be fine. Don't don't go crazy. Don't try to rush anything. Try to enjoy the moments. Take the strength that you've, you know, take those those things that you've you you were given through the struggle that you've had, and make the most of them. Let them let them serve you. Don't let them bring you down. Let mm. them serve you. Mm. Do you and think er- you would listen? Er- um. I'm I'm not sure if I would, but uh, I sure hope I would because because you know I mean that's basically what I did. That's why I am the guy I am now, right? If I had done that at 18, I probably wouldn't have had a lot. I wouldn't have had a lot of the struggles I had. But then again, you know, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't be who I again. I wouldn't have had a lot of those experiences that taught me so much about violence and this and that, right? Yeah. But, but that's basically what I what. 
you know, what I talked about earlier about that self-confidence, that self-assurance, it's just like, you know, what is, what is your life led you to understand about yourself that you're, for me, it's like, well, I'm resilient. I'm super strong. I'm super, I can't be broken. These yeah. are things that, that give me such a sense of confidence. I, I, I'm like super, um, yeah, I, my biggest thing is I, I'm unbreakable. I feel like an, mm. I'm, I'm an unbreakable person. You cannot, you cannot break me because I, I've, I feel like I've withstood the, the things to know that about myself. And it gives me so much confidence. Like you can take away everything in my life. But if I had known that and accepted that about myself at 18, um, I would have made my path a lot easier. But again, mm. I, there's a lot of things I wouldn't have learned. Right. So it's all good. <laughs> Correct. So how can people get a hold of you? How can they learn more about, about you and the Goliath foundation and just in, in general? Well, all of the information, if you go to the um, you'll find our website there. And we have our podcast, which I do with my daughter, which is uh, the Love and Goliath podcast. We're on Instagram at Love, Love and Goliath, where um, you can email us at uh, the, Goliath, uh, the Goliath Foundation at gmail.com. Um, yeah, we're pretty much on all the platforms, I think. But uh, the main thing is if people want to learn more, uh, thegliathfoundation.com. Okay. And I'll make sure to put all that in notes. Um, for everybody listening, manhoodpod.com, info at manhoodpod.com. If you want to get a hold of me, if you've got people you want me to interview, if you've got constructive criticism, keyword constructive, don't just complain. you got to offer a solution or I'm going to ignore your email. Uh, <laughs> nice. But, but. Uh, that's the that's the key with millennial manhood. Any c- criticism is welcome as long as there's a solution attached to it. Um, but as always, guys, I appreciate you listening. Ben, thank you for coming on. This was awesome. I think uh, uh, I think your story is super cool, and and uh, I hope people go check it out and and see what else they can learn. And hopefully, you publish that book one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you very much.